and that he would draw sinners to repentance, that he would grant understanding. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 8 is where we are in our Bibles this morning, Luke chapter 8. Picking up with our study through the Gospel of Luke, and yes, children are dismissed to Children's Church right now. Children through the third grade can head on out for Children's Church. Luke chapter 8. Here at Cloverleaf Baptist, we believe that worship means that we read the word, that we pray the word, that we preach the word, that we show the word. We believe that worship is all about the word of God, not about an experience or a feeling that we get, though there may be, that may be an element of it as we respond to God's truth, but primarily about hearing from God and hearing from his truth. And that's why in the centerpiece of our service, every time we gather, we open the scripture and we let the scripture speak to us. I'm not going to get up here and give you my opinions every week, but I'm going to give you what the truth of Scripture says. So Luke chapter 8 is where we are. We'll be picking up in verse number 40 today. Luke chapter 8, picking up in verse 40. But first, just some thoughts here. It's been said that there's two things that are certain in life. Anybody know what those two things are? What are those two things? Death and taxes. Good. Okay, we're awake here today. Those of you online, you can follow along. Give us a like and a share, by the way, if you're on Facebook. Give us some comments. Tell us what you're thinking as the sermon goes along, since half of our church is on Facebook today. Death and taxes, right? Nothing is certain as death and taxes, right? Nothing is as final as death. It does not matter who you are. Eventually, every single one of us will die. Ten out of ten people die. Recent studies have proven that, right? Actually, no studies have had to be done. We just know that that is true. In our world, as advanced as it has become, our world has not, and I submit to you, will not ever find a solution to death. That doesn't mean people haven't tried, right? The ancient Egyptians would mummify people, believing that they needed their bodies to go into the next life. By the way, did anyone else go down to see that mummy exhibit that was there down in the museum? Or was I the only weird person who thought that would be a cool thing to see? Uh, They had that mummy exhibit down there in the, the mobile museum of history. It was actually pretty neat. They actually had real... I almost said real live mummies, real dead mummies that were there, and they talked about how this happened. They had this belief you had to preserve the body. I just finished listening to a podcast series uh, called American Innovations, and they were talking about the development of this weird pseudoscience called chirogenics, where people take their bodies and they freeze them in liquid nitrogen, and then they keep them in the steel tube in Scottsdale, Arizona, in hopes that in some future, uh, future generation, technology will be developed to resuscitate them and bring them back into their former lives. Uh, such an odd practice. In the last year, of course, we've been very much confronted with mortality, with death. Uh, COVID-19 taking over 600,000 lives in our country. That is an unbelievable, that is a staggering number tragedies, death, and we don't have a solution to it. Yet in our text today, we're going to see Jesus defeating death. Uh, Amazing. He's the only one who has ever in history been able to raise someone from the dead, the only person in history who himself has risen from the dead by his own power, by his own strength. And it is because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead that you and I can have victory over death. You and I can have hope in life, and you and I will one day be resurrected. Isn't that amazing hope this morning for us? In contrast to our society and our world's inability to defeat death, we see one who dominates both disease and death. In fact, this is the supreme proof that Jesus is God in the flesh. Romans 1 and verse 4 says that he's declared to be the Son of God with power. How? By the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is the final proof that Jesus is God's Son. Like, man, I'm not a Christian here this morning, or I'm kind of wrestling with this. Or I've got friends who don't know if Christianity is true or not. The big fact that you must wrestle with is the fact of the empty tomb. 
the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So here's the point in our text today. Jesus has authority over disease and over death. Now, if that's true, if Jesus has authority, we must bow to that authority, right? Real implications. If he's got all authority in heaven and earth, authority over, as we've seen in past weeks, over the storm, over the creation, last week over demons, this week over disease and over death, then it raises the question, does he have authority in every area of my life? Right? Real implications. We're going to see the authority of Jesus spelled out in compelling fashion in today's text, in today's message. But does he have authority over your life? Have you bowed to the authority? Do you bow to the authority of Jesus? So over what does he have authority? Well, let's dive into our, attack, into our text this morning. And first off, I want us to note his authority over distress. Look in verse 40. It came to pass. Luke chapter 8, verse 40. It came to pass that when Jesus was returned, okay, returned from where? Okay, remember he had started off in Galilee. He had gone across the lake in a boat over to the region of Gadara. On the way over, there had been a big storm. Right? He calms the storm. He comes into Gadara, Gentile territory. He's met with the guy with the legion of demons, the guy who's naked and has just complete domination of demons in his life. He rescues that man. He delivers him. And then the locals get so freaked out, they're like, Jesus, please leave. So Jesus gets in the boat. He comes back. Right? So he's returned. When that happens, verse 40 says, the people gladly received him. Huge crowd ready to welcome Jesus. Big reception committee ready to welcome him. Don't forget that Jesus was immensely popular In the Galilee, right? He's healing people. He's preaching. He's showing compassion. People love to hear Jesus. They love to be around Jesus. And behold, verse 41. So now Luke's kind of drawing our attention, and this is kind of the, hey, pay attention. This is the the story. This is what I want you to notice. So big crowd of people, they're all welcoming Jesus, huge multitude of people thronging him. There came a man named Jairus. This is the New Testament version of the name Jair, who's one uh, one of the judges. The name means Jehovah enlightened or enlivened. Very fitting name for how the story's going to end, by the way. And he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him, was begging him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she lay a-dying. So we see this distress. Jairus showing up to Jesus. Jesus coming here, there's a big crowd, and here comes Jairus, this lone individual. Now notice his position. Jairus is a ruler of the synagogue. The synagogue was the place of worship, the place of instruction. It was led and ruled over by usually a council of elders within the community. One of those individuals, or maybe a separate individual, was sort of the president of the synagogue. And his job was to organize the services, decide who was going to be doing the teaching, decide who was going to read the Torah, make sure everything was good to go. Uh, So in a sense, you can think of him as an important community leader. This is a man of prominence. This is a man of influence. And here he comes. To Jesus in complete distress. He's distraught. He's desperate. Well off citizen in Capernaum. Now notice his plea here. He fell down at Jesus' feet and was beseeching him that he would come to his house. In spite of his prominent position, Jairus is facing an absolutely horrible tragedy. A tragedy that a situation in which no parent ever wants to find themselves. Their twelve his twelve year old daughter, his only child is dying. Can you imagine just the pain of that? Now, some of you may have gone through that that heartache, that pain of losing a child, and I cannot imagine anything more painful to go through. Right? You, you, expect, you, you, you expect your parents to go older and grandparents to pass off into eternity before. But you don't expect a child to go off before you. 
She's dying. Now, notice Luke draws this detail out in verse 42. He had one only daughter. That is the word monogenes, translated only begotten. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten, his, his one and only, the apple of his eye, his precious child. You can just imagine Jairus with this little girl. He, he raises her on his knee. She is just the, the, the pride and joy, the light of his life. She's his one and only heir. And now she is dying. She's been sick for some time, and there's very little hope left. There's no human hope. Now, Jairus being the leader of the synagogue, he would have heard about Jesus. Jesus would have preached in Jairus' synagogue. He had been there when Jesus had cast a demon out of a man in the middle of a synagogue service. He had seen the miracles. He had heard the words of Jesus. And perhaps in his heart of hearts, he realized there's something different about Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth can do what other people can't do. And in his desperation, he turned to Jesus. Now, this is surprising to us. One of the things that you pick up very quickly reading any of the four Gospels, religious leaders don't like Jesus, right? His enemies aren't the Romans. They're not the Herodians. They're the scribes. They're the Pharisees. They're the Sadducees. They're the religious elite. And more than likely, this man was a Pharisee by conviction, right? The Pharisees dominated the synagogue. That was their sphere of influence. He's not someone who would be inclined to like Jesus, to trust Jesus, to to give Jesus the time of day. There's no reason to think that Jairus was a clandestine Christian or a secret disciple. What is it that's bringing him to Jesus? His desperation, his distress. Here's a man that probably would have been, ah, Jesus, he's just this country bumpkin wannabe rabbi preaching in the synagogue. Now he's coming, falling, sprawling himself at Jesus' feet in complete, total distress and need. Kent Hughes puts it well. He says, despair is commonly the prelude to grace. Isn't that true? Jesus has authority over distress. God has sovereignty over hardship. Think about the times in your life that you drew close to God, or you got back in church, or you you maybe even came to saving faith in Jesus. Think about some of the things going on in your life, some of the circumstances that were arranged there. Some of y'all can give direct testimony. Some family tragedy occurred that got you saying, wow, I need to get right with Jesus. I need to get right with God. Some difficulty, some diagnosis that drove you to your knees, brought you to faith in Jesus. Oftentimes, distress is is sort of the fishing line, if you will, that God uses to draw us to himself. He uses life's distress to draw us to himself. In easy times, we get self-sufficient. We become self-reliant. We begin to think, you know, life's great. I don't know, God... I'll show up to church on Easter, on Christmas. Maybe I'll read my Bible once or twice a week. We're not really serious about our faith. Or worse yet, we think, in my good works, I can earn my way to God. Obviously, things are going well for me right now. But then God brings this distress, this despair, this disaster into our lives that strips us of that notion, of that fiction of our self-reliance, of our self-sufficiency. And we realize, I need God. God in his sovereign goodness will often bring profound pain and deep discomfort into our lives to get our attention, to stir our hearts for him. A family conflict, a cancer diagnosis, the loss of a loved one. But here's the encouragement in this. This circumstance did not catch Jesus by surprise. Jesus is the son of God. God from eternity past orchestrated every event of history. Ephesians 1.11 says he is working all things according to the counsel of his will. So even that distress, that hardship that came into your life, was part of the plan that God wrote for your life from eternity past. 
And he's got a good and gracious purpose in that. He has authority over even distress and pain. So you might look at this and be like, well, here's this pain. Jesus kind of just jumps in and fixes it. Well, even the pain itself sets up this amazing encounter. You see, none of us would ever seek God if we did not realize first that we need God. Jairus would never have given Jesus the time of day if his 12-year-old daughter was not first dying. So praise God. Praise God for the pain that brings you to him. Praise God for the hardship that brings you into his presence. Praise God for the restlessness that leads you to ultimate rest. Augustine famously, famously wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. Just that emptiness, it brings us to, there's more out there and I need God and brings you to that place of faith and repentance. So we see his distress. This man is falling down at Jesus' feet in worship. That should shock us because the Jews, one thing they understood was there is only one God, right? And you do not bow yourself down to any man, to any king, to any human being, to any idol. And here he is worshiping Jesus. This shows us a profound level of distress that brings Jairus to Jesus. So we see in this first scene the authority Jesus has over distress, over Jairus' distress, over your distress, over my distress. Even over the circumstances we're seeing in our church right now with so many who are sick. And listen, I'll be honest, I, I'm discouraged about this, right? Like so many who are unable to be here and unable to worship and concerned about the needs. But listen, God is sovereign over even that. He has authority over everything. Which brings us to a second point. Jesus has authority not only over distress, but also over disease. So this story is going to get interrupted now. And what we have going on in, the, in, in verses 40 to 56 is what uh, Bible scholars call a sandwich, right? Here's why. You've got sort of story A, Jesus and Jairus. And then there's interrupted, and we get the story about Jesus and this woman. And then we come back to the other slice of bread at the end with Jesus and Jairus. So it kind of goes A, B, A in the format. So notice the end of verse 42. As he went, the people thronged him. So Jesus agrees to go with Jairus to Jairus' house, to go lay his hands on this daughter who is dying to try to save her life before it's too late. Verse 43, as he's on his way, notice verse 43, and a woman having an issue of blood, 12 years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment. And immediately her issue of blood stanched, stopped, stood still. And Jesus said, who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude thronged thee and pressed thee. Sayest thou who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody has touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. So this amazing story interrupts the story about Jesus and Jairus. This woman who meets Jesus. Notice her condition, verse 43. So Jesus is on his way. This huge crowd. Picture this, this, ancient, this ancient village with, with, with streets that are just narrow and crowded with thousands of people. Right? Thousands of people cramming into this narrow little street. It's like when you're sometimes you're leaving a baseball game and people are just kind of pressed one against another. Or have you ever seen those videos of people cramming onto subways in Tokyo? It's that kind of level of 
No personal space, right? No social distancing going on here. Just crowds of people pressing along, making the journey, of course, excruciatingly slow if you're Jairus. So Jesus goes along, this, this lone woman emerges from the crowd. Now, we wouldn't have noticed her if we were there. She looked just like everyone else. There was nothing special about her. There wasn't like a, a neon sign over her head, her head being like, a miracle is about to happen. But this woman comes. says she's had an issue of blood. She's had this hemorrhaging going on for years and years, this bleeding problem, this bleeding condition that has not stopped for 12 years. And her condition is dire. Her physical condition is dire. Now, verse 43 says, no one could heal her, right? There, 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 was just, there, there was no one who could do anything for her. Some texts include the line that she'd spent her whole living on physicians, right? We get that very clearly spelled out in Mark. Mark, by the way, in his record of this, is pretty negative towards the doctors. It's like the doctors actually made her worse and not better. Um, Luke himself is a doctor, so he kind of he, he doesn't blast his own profession there. But the point being, this was a condition that no one could help, no one could remedy. Twelve years, spending all of her money trying to relieve this problem, trying to get it dealt with. So here she was. She's, she's constantly losing blood. Her constant blood loss would have rendered her weak and exhausted. She was completely out of options. No doctor could help her. She was completely out of money. She had spent it all, and she was pretty much out of hope at this point. But add to this a little cultural note. You might say, okay, well, that's just a physical condition. You can live with that. But according to the book of Leviticus, if you read, just jot this reference down, Leviticus 15 and verse 25, a woman who had this kind of condition would have been rendered ceremonially unclean, which means you can't go to the temple, you can't go to synagogue. The, the passage in Leviticus goes on to say that a woman who's in a state of uncleanness, if she comes into contact with anyone else, they're also unclean. So that means other people would say, we're going to avoid being with her. We're going to step back. We're not going to hang out with her. She would have been shunned from the community. She would have been shut out from the social and the religious life of Israel. For 12 years, she couldn't go to synagogue. For 12 years, she couldn't go to the festivals. For 12 years, she couldn't go to the temple. For 12 years, she's been living in greater and greater isolation and alienation and shunning from the community. People probably would have looked at her and regarded, man, she must have done some horrible sin to be cursed with that sickness. She must, have been, she must be a, a horrible person. Now think about how different she was from the synagogue ruler. He's a man, she's a woman. That's a big deal in the ancient world. There's very much a hierarchy that's established between men and women that Jesus comes and explodes. Further, he's a synagogue ruler. She's someone who's on the outside. He's probably rich. She more than likely is impoverished. As different as they were, however, the synagogue ruler and the woman have a common trait, and is both of them need Jesus. I mention that because our world today, we have this whole thing called identity politics, where everyone gets sort of divvied up into a group, and your identity is based on your group. Oh, you're white, you're bad, right? You're black, you're oppressed. You're a woman, you're this. You're a man, you're that. And all of these different groups where your, your, your identity is based on the group, and we deny this sort of common humanity. When I say we, I mean society at large. This is a view that I would very much reject. Scripture would reject it, by the way, as well. Scripture emphasizes the fact that we are all one in Adam and we share a common need. As different as you and I may be this morning, there's something that is 100% the same for all of us. We all desperately need Jesus, right? 
That, that is the great need of humanity is not for oppression and equality, but it is for our need before God to be dealt with in Christ. The, the great commonality we have as sons of Adam and of a redemption in Christ is a far greater commonality we have than any of the superficial differences that may divide us. So here's this woman in her social condition, her physical condition, just in complete desperation. So here she comes. Nothing's worked. Verse 44, she came behind Jesus and touched the border of his garment. This was it. This is the last, the last hope for her. The last best hope, to, to steal a phrase, is Jesus. Now, why did she come behind him? You know, why not just come up and say, hey, Jesus, heal me? Well, because of her social condition. There's tremendous shame that goes along with this particular type of condition that she has. Everyone knows that someone with a, with a, with a bleeding issue like she has, well, they're unclean. For her to be out in public would even be a, a morally, religiously questionable thing. For her to even touch this great rabbi could bring tremendous shame and reproach on her. So she says, I'm going to come up behind him. I'm going to come behind him where nobody can see me. I'm going to come in the shadows and just sort of quietly touch the border of his garment. There's an element of superstition in this. I get that. She thinks that there's sort of this magical power in the, the clothes Jesus is wearing. There, okay, there's a knot. There's a little bit of superstition, but listen, what there is is faith. There is genuine trust that I believe that Jesus can do what no one else can do. And listen, God honors faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. But listen, all who come in faith to Jesus are welcomed, are received. Jesus delights in, Jesus honors faith, even if it is an imperfect faith. Listen, none of us, when we came to Jesus, understood all the ins and outs of the finer points of Christianity. We came knowing just one thing, I'm a sinner, Jesus is God's son, and he died on the cross for me, and I'm relying on him and him alone. And then we grow in that faith. Listen, saving faith will be a growing faith. This woman comes to Jesus in this uninformed faith, but a confident faith. So as Jesus passed by, she reaches out her hand and grabs onto one of the four tassels. That's what that word translated border. Don't think hem, though a lot of poetry about the hem of his garments and that kind of thing. According to the book of Numbers and the book of Deuteronomy, every Torah-observant man would have to have tassels on the four corners of their garments. You say, why? God wanted there to be a visual, uh, physical reminder to Jewish men of their obligation to keep the Torah. Jesus was a Torah-observant Jew. Don't forget that. He's not a a blonde-haired, blue-eyed European. No, he would have been an olive-complexioned Middle Eastern man. He would have been a Jewish man keeping the Torah, keeping the sacrifices, going to synagogue on Sabbath. All of those things. He would have had those tassels on his garment. And as he goes by, those tassels are swaying, and she reaches out and grabs that tassel, fluttering as he passes by. Verse 44, look at this. This is amazing. She came behind him. She touched the border of his garment. And immediately, her issue of blood stood. Right? The instant that she touches Jesus in faith, the problem for which she came to be remedied of, is dealt with. The cure is instantaneous. Uh, Notice that word immediately. Immediately. This is not a, well, she began to feel something and a few days later began to get better. This is not the the charlatan practice of the the faith healers, right, where they come along with a soup coat and knock people off the stage. By the way, all of that is is staged. Benny Hinn's nephew, Kosti Hinn, recently, a few years back, came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's given the insider account of everything that went on in Benny Hinn's ministry. 
And he talks about how there would be people at the back of the auditorium, desperate people in wheelchairs and real needs, that the, the staff would make sure did not make it to the platform because there's no one who's actually getting healed at those things. When Jesus heals, it is real, it is verifiable, it is instantaneous, and it is complete. Right? It is not some parlor trick where you try to make someone's leg look bigger. No, this is real, genuine healing that Jesus gives. None of us have the ability to do that. God has the ability to do that. By the way, God does still heal. God is sovereign. God answers prayer. We have seen God answer prayer. But none of us have the ability to go around willy-nilly doing what Jesus did because we're not Jesus. This complete and total healing. So immediately, I think she felt instantaneously in her body. The bleeding stopped. Instantaneously began to feel vitality where she had felt exhaustion all the time. Immediately her strength returned. And immediately the shame and the uncleanness disappeared. That's how Jesus works, right? When we come to him in faith. Now listen, I don't want to turn this into an allegory. This is a real story. But I think we can see something about how he works. When a sinner comes to Jesus with their uncleanness, with their shame, with their brokenness, With their rebellion and fall before him in repentance and faith, he immediately declares us righteous. We call that justification. Declared righteous in the sight of a holy God. Immediately forgiven, immediately adopted, immediately regenerated, immediately born again, immediately brought into a new relationship with God. So her condition is dire. Her her cure is immediate. But notice what happens now in verses 45 to 47. The story could end right there with her going off and we never know about it. She comes secretly to get healed, to get this remedy. But Jesus is not content with that. Jesus said, who touched me? Mark adds that he he stopped and he began looking around, looking for the person who touched me. Man, here she comes. She doesn't want to be noticed. She doesn't want anyone to draw attention to her. She doesn't want anyone to point her out. Her immediate relief suddenly turns to immediate terror. Can you imagine? Right? She's done everything she can not to be noticed. Now she realizes, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus has noticed me. Her joy, no doubt, was brought to a screeching halt by these words of Jesus. Now, verse 45 goes on to say, everyone denied it. And then Peter, okay, Peter's often the guy who says what everyone else is thinking. We often like, Peter, be quiet. The reason why we don't like people like Peter is they say the things that we think, right? So here's Peter saying what everyone else is thinking. Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee, and sayest thou who touched me? It's kind of like Jesus. Like, people are literally pressing on you from every side. There's dozens of hands on you right now, and you're wondering who touched you? You're being crushed by the crowd. By the way, the the word throng and press, one of those words is the word that would be used of a wine press where grapes are crushed, right? That's quite a powerful picture. The body is just being pressed together. The, The physical pressure that is on Jesus, on this little group, making excruciatingly slow progress through the narrow streets of Capernaum. Yet among the hundreds of hands that are touching Jesus as he passes by and pressing him along on his way, he knew which hand touched him in faith. Right? When Jesus says, who touched me, he doesn't mean who touched me physically. He means who touched me spiritually. Who touched me not with just a physical touch of the hand, but with a spiritual touch of faith. Peter is being overly literal here, as the disciples often are. Doesn't see the meaning in what Jesus is saying. Who touched me? Verse 46, Jesus puts Peter in his place. Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue has gone out of me. He says, no, Peter. Someone did touch me, and power, that's what that word virtue means. It's the word power, dunamis. Uh, Divine ability has gone out of me. When Jesus heals, it's not just sort of this going around, like I said, hitting people with a suit jacket. It's just a real cool display. It actually cost power coming out of him. There's a sense in which it cost Jesus 
to perform every healing that he performed. Now, this is what is amazing. According to the Mosaic law, woman with uncleanness touches Jesus. Jesus should be what? Unclean. Right? The uncleanness should pass from her to Jesus. Now, Jesus is now unclean. He can't go to the synagogue. But Jesus is so pure and holy and perfect. Instead of his being contaminated by her uncleanness, she was cured by his power. That's awesome. Jesus doesn't get contaminated by our sin. Rather, our contact with him brings purity and power and forgiveness to us. So Jesus asks not just once, but twice, who touched me? He's calling her out. He's calling her to stand forward. Now, why did he do this? You ever wonder, like, well, why couldn't Jesus just be like, oh, virtue's gone out of me, someone's healed, it's great. He's omniscient, he knows who this is. It's not that Jesus is like, man, I have no idea, I just need to find out who I healed, or I, need, I have a need to sort of get public recognition here. Why does he do this? I think for, for, on many levels, he does this for the woman's own benefit. Until there is public recognition that she's been healed, people are still going to view her as unclean. They're still going to shun her. This sort of this public testimony is going to be Jesus giving his stamp of approval, being like, she's cured, she's healed. Welcome her back into the community, right? This is, this is sort of this, this public declaration that brings her back into community with God's people. He does this to draw her out of the shadows of shame into the light of restoration. This confession is going to restore her, and it's going to bring honor to God. Listen, Jesus wants God to get the glory for this healing. And so long as it's sort of a secret thing, and so long as it's sort of a personal, private thing, that's not going to happen. So notice what happens in verse 47. When the woman saw that she was not hid, when she saw she could not escape notice, it's the sense of that, that word, when she realized her little plan to sort of secretly sneak up, touch, and leave wasn't going to work, when she realized Jesus' searching gaze would land on her, she came trembling. There's fear. Maybe there's fear that, oh no, this rabbi is going to call me out and shame me just like everyone else has done. But is that what happens? No. She's not met with rebuke and with shaming and with you horrible person. She is met with welcome and with compassion and kindness. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? A beautiful glimpse into the heart of our Savior. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. It's the one passage in Scripture where Jesus tells us about his heart. By the way, it's been a good book called Gentle and Lowly, written by Dane Ortland, or is it Gavin Ortland? One of the Ortlands wrote the book. Really good book about the gentleness and the humility of Jesus Christ. He welcomes those. He invites sufferers and sinners, and he receives them. So she came trembling in the sphere, and then says she fell down before him. Just worship and gratitude. By the way, notice Jairus fell down before him. She falls down before him. The demon back in our last week's sermon, they fell down before him. The implication in the boat is that the disciples fall down before him. Remember this whole section of Luke's gospel has one main point. The power of Jesus. What is the response to the power of Jesus? It's worship. Worship, by the way, the word worship simply means, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the idea of bowing down as a posture of humility before the great God. So she comes trembling in this position of worship. She's acknowledging the greatness of Jesus. She knew, I believe she knew, she was in the presence of one with divine power. She may not have known everything about the identity of Jesus, but she certainly knew about the power of Jesus. When we get saved... When we get delivered, the most natural thing in the world for you and me to do is to worship. That's why we're gathered here this morning, right? That's why we believe God's people gathering together, even if it's a Sunday morning like this, right? We're like, man, a lot, of, a lot is going on in, in our community, in our world, in our church. 
coming together and worshiping together face-to-face physically is an imperative for us. This is, this is one of the reasons we've been redeemed. We've been redeemed so we would be worshipers. Gathering with God's people to, in church, gathering with God's people to worship, it's not just sort of a nice thing we do to placate God. No, this is the expression of the redeemed heart. This is let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I am coming to celebrate what God has done in my life and do it with others. So it says, she came and fell down before him. Now back in verse 47, look at the text. Join me back there in verse 47. She declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. She has this amazing confession before everyone who is there, before all the people. This is amazing because just one verse before, she doesn't want anyone to know. Now she wants everyone to know. This woman who is probably very shy is now essentially giving a, a testimony, giving a sermon, if you will, before the multitude there as to what Jesus has done. Notice how detailed it was. She told the cause for which she had touched him. She, she publicly said, hey, here was the, the physical problem that I had. Here's what was going on in my life, and here's what Jesus did. Saving faith is going to be public faith. All right? Saving faith is going to be public faith. Saving faith is going to want to tell the world, I'm now a follower of Jesus. This confession was public, and it was open. She confessed before the people. She made it clear how desperate she had been and how fully she had been delivered by Jesus. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 66 and verse 16. Come and hear all who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. By the way, God has established a particular practice that allows people who've come to Jesus to publicly declare their faith. You know what it is? It's baptism. Baptism is not washing away our sins. Baptism, rather, is someone saying, I've been buried with Jesus and I've risen with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I'm with his people. I'm a follower of Jesus now. That's what baptism is. It is that public declaration of that very real, very private, sometimes faith. It is taking it public. It is sort of putting a ring on it, so to speak, so everyone knows this outward sign of an inward reality. So notice how Jesus responds to her. She likely was expecting, you do not touch rabbis when you're in uncleanness. You, you horrible woman, go back to the... No, he doesn't do that. Verse 48. Daughter... My faith has made thee whole. By the way, that phrase, made thee whole, not, that word is not referring to physical healing. It is the word that's often translated saved. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's beautiful, isn't it? My faith hath made thee whole. By the way, that's singular. It doesn't, it doesn't do things for other people. It's only for her. Your faith can only save you. It doesn't save other people, right? It, God has children, not grandchildren. This phrase, by the way, was used, this identical phrase, in fact, back in chapter 7 and verse 50. There Jesus is dealing with a woman, not with a physical need, but with a very clear spiritual need. She was a sinner within the city. She comes, anoints the feet of Jesus. Jesus tells her, thy sins are forgiven, verse 48. Then verse 50, he says, thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Exact same words in the Greek. Back to our text in Luke 8, verse 48. The woman has already been healed. It's not that Jesus is now saying, oh, now I'm going to heal. No, she's already experienced healing. Now Jesus is saying, based on your faith and your public confession of me, I'm saying that you're saved. That's how I interpret this. Now, there is some debate as to, yes, saved can mean saved from physical distress. But I believe what Jesus is saying in verse 48 is this woman who has believed in her heart and confessed with her mouth that she has been saved. She became a disciple of Jesus. Was her faith faith fully formed? 
Was her faith fully informed, I mean? No, she had a lot to learn about who Jesus was and a lot to learn about the nature of trust and what Jesus would do in his death on the cross. But she had faith that he was that Messiah. The one who is predicted in Malachi chapter 4, the son of righteousness risen with healing, what, in his wings. The, the wings of the garment flowing behind Jesus, bringing healing. She believed that he was that one. Through her confession, through this response, Jesus made it very clear, your faith has made thee whole. Your confidence in me, not the touch. It's not the superstitious touch that saved her, but it is the saving trust that has saved her. She's been saved not by a touch, but by trust. Not by magic, but by the Messiah. That's another reason, by the way, why I think Jesus insists so much in drawing her out. Up to that point, she had just trusted enough to touch, but now she's trusted enough to confess and to publicly declare confidence in Christ. She's given testimony to both her dire need and his gracious help. She's believed in her heart, and now she's confessed with her mouth. She's completed the circle, if you will, as one commentator put it, uh, of Psalm 50, which says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and thou shalt glorify me. That's the plan that God has. In our trouble, we call upon him. He delivers, and we bring glory to him. I think many of us have gotten stages one and two. We've called on him, and he's delivered us. But do you give God glory for what he has done? Do you give testimony to others that he has saved you? You come to faith in Jesus, maybe just recently or recent years, or maybe it was decades ago. Who are you telling about what God has done for your soul? I said this last week. I'll say it again this week. If you know enough truth to become a Christian, you know enough, you know enough truth to help someone else become a Christian. Simply telling them, this is what God did for me. I knew I was a sinner. I put my trust in Jesus. I repented of my sins. I bowed to the Lordship of Jesus, and he saved me. So we see his authority over disease. Any sickness is under the authority of Jesus. COVID-19 bows to Jesus. The Delta variant answers to its Lord and his master, Jesus Christ. Disease is not something that God's up in heaven being like, oh, no, but it is under his control. He is sovereign over everything. We can take comfort in that. We can take comfort, comfort knowing that all of creation is under the sovereign rule of Jesus Christ, which means he has the ability to heal, and he has the ability to choose not to heal. Our prayer as Christians is for God's will to be done, and God oftentimes answers that prayer of faith to save, to heal the sick, to raise them up again. So we see his sovereignty over distress, using the distress that came into Jairus' life to bring Jairus to Jesus. We see his sovereignty over disease, healing the disease that this woman had from which she could not be cured. But now we see his authority over delays. All the while this is going on, Jairus is standing over there sort of looking at his watch, being like, my daughter is dying, my daughter is dying, and now we're, we're stuck here in a narrow street, and Jesus is having a conversation with a woman like, come on, Jesus, let's get going. We don't read Jairus saying that. But I think anyone who's a parent here can understand the desperation that he's feeling. I just put yourself in this situation, your 12-year-old daughter, right? You're, you, the, the, the paramedics have shown up, and they're, they're, they're taking too long to get your child into the ambulance, get them to the hospital. You would be probably being like, let's hurry up, let's get moving here, right? Here's Jairus. Here's this delay. We see the authority of Jesus over the delay. I, I send an email out to the church talking about delays. We all face delays in our, in our lives. Delays come in a number, of, a number of ways, right? You're, you're driving home from work, and there's a car accident on I-10, right? And it just delays you for 30 minutes. You didn't plan on that. It wasn't that you left work later. didn't have sufficient, a sufficient plan in place. 
But something got in the way, some unexpected, something unplanned got in the way and prevented you from getting to where you wanted to go at a certain time. You hit every single red light on Airport Boulevard, and you're like two hours delayed from getting from one end to the other end of Airport Boulevard. Or you're, you're waiting in the doctor's office, and the doctor had a case that took, took them longer than they wanted to be, and you're there for an extra hour. You're delayed. Kicks all the plans back for the day. It almost feels like Jesus is delayed here. Look at verse 49. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. Doesn't it certainly seem like if Jesus hadn't stopped to help this woman He could have made it to the house in time and saved this girl before she died. It's almost like there's a delay that's happened from Jairus' perspective that has resulted in his daughter's death. You know, some delays will maybe, you know, you get to work late and you lose 15 minutes of pay. This delay, apparently, at first glance, is a deadly delay, right? Jesus getting delayed helping this woman has resulted in Jairus' daughter dying. The progress through the street, that word, by the way, in verse 42 that says the people thronged him, that's literally the word that's translated earlier in the parable of the sower, choked. So we got this word like the crowd is pressing Jesus like a grape. This word that the crowd is almost choking him, preventing him from getting to where he needs to be. This is an intense crowd making, making, the, making the progress very, very slow. Then you've got this woman who stops and Jesus who has a conversation with her and does a healing. And then, boom, the messengers show up to say, your daughter has died. So someone has come from the, the house, maybe a servant, maybe a family member. The tense of that word is dead, perfect tense in the Greek. Thy daughter has died. There's a note of finality. She's died, and she's now in a state of being dead, and we know that is the country from whose born no traveler returns. Quote Shakespeare, right? This this is permanent. This is, you're not coming back from this one. Now, Luke links these two stories together quite masterfully. Do you notice the introduction in verse 49? While he yet spake. You might be tempted to be like, well, there's two different stories. No, these are woven together. They're they're put together like a sandwich. And that is on purpose. When you get a sandwich like this in the Gospels, the different parts sort of co-interpret each other. What Jesus does for the woman is meant to help us understand what he does for Jairus. And what he does for Jairus helps us understand what he does for the woman. These are two interrelated stories. Did you notice this as well? Verse 48, daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith has made thee whole. While he yet spake, verse 49, there's one who comes from the synagogue's house saying, Thy daughter is dead. The exact same word. Jesus refers to this woman, who is likely the same age, if not older than him, as daughter. This is the only place in the gospel where Jesus refers to a woman as daughter. That's interesting, right? By the way, did you notice how long she had been sick? Twelve years. How old is the girl? Twelve years. They're sort of like stacking up these parallels. Why? So Jairus can see. Okay, here's this woman. She's had a 12-year-long ailment. Here's my daughter who's 12 years old. Jesus calls her daughter. I call my girl daughter. Maybe what he did for one, he can do for the other. So what's the point of this delay? How does Jesus use this delay? Look at verse 50. When Jesus heard it, he answered, saying, Fear not, only believe, and she shall be made whole. Right, again, more parallel. So he says, stop fearing. And you can imagine the fear immediately in Jairus' heart. Of, my girl has died. There's nothing more I can do. My life is forever changed. And then believe only, she shall be made whole. Okay, we got that word believe, and then that word shall be made whole. These are very similar words to what he said in verse 48. So there's this parallel after parallel, the 12 years, 12 years, daughter, daughter. Faith and saving, okay, that being made whole, same word that's translated. Uh, she will, thy faith has made thee whole in verse 48. 
This linkage between the power of Jesus and the deliverance through need is what faith. Faith is what joins the, the power of Jesus to the need of man. Right? That, that's the key. Faith is simply the hand that receives. It's not that faith is like the cause. Like, oh, God's like, oh, man, you've, you've got a lot of faith. I'm really impressed by your faith. No, we are saved by the work of Jesus, and faith is merely the channel through which his power comes, through which his grace comes. Here's what I'm saying. He's, Jesus is sovereign over delays. He was using this delay to strengthen Jairus' faith. He's got a bigger goal here than simply raising the girl from the dead. His goal is to win Jairus' heart and to win Jairus' faith. And so Jesus is going to say, Jairus, I'm going to give you exhibit A for my power. I'm going to heal the woman with the issue of blood. What I did for her, I can do for your girl. Only believe. He's calling Jairus to a greater faith than he had before. You see, God and his sovereignty has a purpose in our delays. right? And that is to teach us faith. Teach us faith, to teach us faith in his sovereign purposes. Remember I said earlier, literally everything is under the sovereign rule of God. Now, I'm one of those people who gets really frustrated when I get late, right? Like, I, I, I look at the clock and I'm like, man, I need to be there on time. And listen, there is, there is something that is good and right and virtuous about being prompt, right? About being on time places and making sure you plan enough time. So I'm not, I'm not talking about when you, like, just leave... 10 minutes too late for, for a 40-minute drive. But I, I'm talking about when delays come in your life. When you say, I want to be here, and there's obstacles, and there's frustrations. God has a purpose in that. It is to strengthen and to teach faith. You see, Jesus, God, is sovereign, which means this luck is not sovereign. Some people think, man, I'll go look at the horoscope in the newspaper, and that'll tell me what my destiny will be. No, the stars do not determine your destiny. God determines your destiny. Some people leave it up to sort of blind chance what's going to happen is going to happen. No, chance is not what determines what happens in our life. God is who determines what happens in our life. It's not our ancestors. It's not luck. It's not chance. It's not little charms hanging in your mirror. It's God who is in charge. He's sovereign over even the delays. But here's the big obvious point. The fact that the girl dies sets the stage for Jesus to do an awesome miracle. Probably know the end of the story. What happens at the end of the story? He raises the girl from the dead. What's a bigger miracle? To heal someone or to raise them from the dead? Right? To raise them from the dead is obviously the bigger miracle, the bigger display of divine power. This delay actually results in an opportunity for Jesus, a platform for Jesus to display far greater glory than would have otherwise been seen. Don't lose sight of that. That God has a purpose, and his purpose in everything he does is his own glory. This is ultimately not about Jairus. This is not ultimately about this little girl. This is about the glory and the majesty of Jesus. That is the end for which we were created, brothers and sisters. We were made not for ourselves, but for the glory of God. God's glory is what is ultimate. God's fame is what is ultimate. You can see this even in John chapter 9 and verse 3. There's a man who's born blind. The disciples are like, did he sin? Did his parents? Jesus is like, no, he's been born blind so that God's work would be displayed in him. John 11 and verse 4, he talks about he allows Lazarus to die. Why? So that God's glory may be seen. So through suffering and even through sin itself, God's got an agenda, and that is to further his glory. You see, we like to think that it's all about us. We get frustrated, we get angry, we get selfish because... We have ourselves at the center of our little solar system, right? It's me. It's all about me, and God is there for me. And we read David and Goliath, and we're like, that's all about me. No, 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 no. It's not all about you. It is all about the glory and the majesty of God being displayed. 
And that's humbling, right? That's kind of like a two-by-four to the side of, head, uh, side of the head, right? Uh, it's not about me. It is about God and about what God is doing in our lives, what God is doing in our world. And everything is about bringing him glory. I say, what about sin? Yeah, even sin. What you meant for evil, God meant for good, according to Genesis 50. So we see this delay that declared the glory of Jesus by giving him an opportunity to raise the dead, and it strengthened Jairus' faith by giving him an exhibit of what Jesus could do. A call to believe. Believe only, and she shall be made whole. I love that word only, by the way. We are saved by faith alone. If you're here today and you're trusting in, well, I, you know, I was baptized as a kid. That's why I'm a Christian. I ask people sometimes, hey, do you know that you're saved? Oh, yeah, I got baptized in a Baptist church. That's not the, that's not the, that's not the question. Right? Or, or I'm a good person, or my mommy did this, or my daddy did that, or I'm a, I'm a moral person, I'm going to trust my chances on Judgment Day. No, we are, we are sinners who have rebelled against God, and trusting our chances on Judgment Day is a, a sure strategy to get ourselves damned to eternal hell. Our only hope is to trust the finished work of the one who lived a perfect life and died in our place on the cross and rose again on our behalf. That's our only hope. That's literally the only way anyone can be saved. And the only way to take hold of that is by believing, by relying on Jesus in a repentant faith. Brings us to sort of the climax of the story now. His authority over death. This is the big one. Right, this is the climax of the story. Everything is sort of set up for this. He's, yes, authoritative over distress, bringing Jairus to Jesus. Authoritative over disease, healing the woman's condition. Authoritative over delay, over delay, setting the stage for him to display his glory. Now, here he is displaying his glory. Verse 51. It says, when he came to the house, when he came into the house, he suffered. He allowed no man to go in save Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. All right, so he's like, no one else is coming in except the parents and for these three inner circle of the disciples. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. Now, who's the all in verse 52 who are weeping and bewailing? These are the professional mourners. Okay, in Jewish culture back at this time, when someone dies, you hire at least three mourners. And these are people who professionally come and literally wail and scream and carry on and cry to make everyone sort of feel bad. There would have been flute players there sort of playing these, this horrific funeral dirge. It's just pandemonium chaos that Jesus walks into. And Jesus audaciously says to her, weep not, she's not dead, but is sleeping. Now, of course, he doesn't mean literal sleep. It's not that Jesus is like, hey, you guys misdiagnosed her condition. I'm just going to go shake her and wake her up. Rather, he views death from the divine perspective. Death is not this final, it's all over but death is simply temporary. For the child of God, in fact, death is simply the doorway through which we walk to, into eternal glory. From, divine, from the divine perspective, from Jesus' perspective, death was sleep, right? Something that she could be stirred from. Now, it says in verse 53, and they laughed him to scorn. So the mourners are one minute, oh, she's dead, and then they're like, ha, ha, Jesus, you loser. Like, this is completely fake. It's completely a show they put on to where you can turn from weeping and wailing to derisive laughter, right? Shows you these guys are a bunch of frauds. They don't actually care about Jairus or his family. You ever meet people like that where they come along, I'm so sorry for, for your loss. I'm sorry what you're going through. It's like, it, it's as fake as a $3 bill, right? Jesus does not have that fake compassion. This is not a, a, a how to win friends and influence, make people feel good so you can get, the, get from them what you want. This is genuine compassion that he has in contrast to the, the fake compassion of the mourners. Now it says they knew she was dead. These mourners went to a lot of funerals. 
They knew a dead body when they saw a dead body. There's some people who read this and are like, Jesus didn't actually raise her from the dead. He, you know, she was just kind of in a coma, and he happened to be there at the right time. The girl was dead. Right? The, the mourners saw that she was dead. The messengers saw that she was dead. The disciples were there as witnesses to see that she was dead. So here's the miracle, verse 54. He kicks the mockers out. They're not going to be able to be part of the miracle. By the way, unbelief will often keep you away from what God is doing. You won't see what God is doing. Verse 54 He put them all out. So he kicks all the mockers out, and he took her by the hand. And the way this is in the original, he himself took her by the hand. They can't do, the the mocking mourners cannot do anything for her. The parents cannot do anything for her. But Jesus takes her by the hand. There's a tenderness there. And he called, saying, Maid, arise. And by the way, Mark gives us the literal uh, rendering of the Aramaic, Talitha Kumi. This is a real historical event. He's basically saying, Little girl, wake up, arise. Verse 55, her spirit came again. See, what death is a separation from the spirit soul from the body? The body goes into the ground. The spirit soul either goes to be with God for eternity or to hell. Later on, there will be a resurrection. Body, soul will be reunited. And those who are redeemed in that redeemed, glorified body with Christ forever and those who are unredeemed with that body into the lake of fire for all eternity. So the body, the spirit came again. And she arose immediately, straightway. There's that word again. Same thing, just as he healed the woman with the issue of blood, and she was immediately healed. So this girl arose immediately, and he commanded to give her meat. He says, hey, give her some food. I think that's a nice little detail right there. She's been sick for a long time. She probably hasn't eaten for days. And you can see the parents could just be overwhelmed with joy that they forget to give her a meal. Here's Jesus' concern about body and soul. Now here's Jesus demonstrating power over death. Like, that's insane amount of power and authority for him to come along and be like, someone who's dead, say a word, and here they are alive. We see him raising Lazarus from the dead. We saw him back in chapter 7 raising the the son of the widow at Nain. We see Jesus raising the dead, and then here is the one that takes the cake. He gets crucified, he gets laid in a tomb, and three days later, by his own power, he walks out of a tomb. Listen, if you can lay in a tomb for three days dead, and then walk out, you have power. That's the point. Jesus has great, infinite power. He is the creator of life, therefore he can give life. He is the one who has authority over death, therefore he can conquer death for all who believe in him. Modern medicine can never do this. Sure, it can, it can restart a stopped heart, right, doing CPR, and we're grateful for things like that. But they can't come to someone who's been dead for any meaningful length of time and bring them back to life again and allow them to go on and live a fruitful life. Verse 56, her parents were astonished. Yeah, you better believe it. If you saw this happen, you would be wide-eyed and actually quite terrified. By the way, we've seen this response already. Verse 37, the people who saw him cast the demons out of the guy in Gadara were taken with a great fear. The disciples, when they saw Jesus calm the storm, were taken with a great fear. We see some common responses to the power of Jesus. One of them is fear in the presence of the divine. Listen, the notion that we can just sort of waltz into God's presence flippantly and glibly and be like, ah, yeah, let's just kind of do church however and whatever. That notion is absolutely absurd when you realize how powerful and awesome and pure and holy he is. He is awesome. There should be a godly fear in the presence of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But there's also a response of trust, of faith. Both the woman and Jairus had faith, genuine faith, in response to who Jesus was. 
So what does this story teach us? It teaches us the awesome power of Jesus, the awesome authority of Jesus over everything. He conquers death for all who believe in him. He has authority over nature. Peace be still, the waves stop. Over demons and over evil, where he can cast the demons out, thousands of demons out of a man. He has authority over disease, over delays, over death. Who is he then? He is the Son of God. He is God Almighty. He is the Savior of the world. He has all authority. I just want to conclude with this. Bowing before the authority of Jesus means going much further than simply adopting cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity says this, go to church, be a nice person, yeah, pray a prayer, accept Jesus, and then go on with your life. Cultural Christianity, beloved, will send you to hell. It might make this world a better place. I would rather have a world where people are moral as opposed to immoral, but it won't save you. Biblical Christianity says if Jesus is all-powerful, has all authority, the only rightful response is one of complete surrender and yielding and repentance and believing and trusting in him. It means he has authority over our lives. When you get saved, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the master, that he is God, that he calls the shots. So does he rule your life? Does he have that authority in your life, in your soul, in your heart? Does he rule your family, how your family operates? Does he rule your schedule, what you do with your time? Does he rule the ethics that you follow when you are at work? Does he rule your marriage? Does he rule your habits? Does he rule your beliefs? Does he rule your worldview? You see, saving faith in Jesus means that Jesus rules. It means that Jesus has this awesome authority. If that's true in all these areas, if he has this awesome power, he has that in my life. Father, we praise you for your son, the one who turns delays and distresses into deliverances.